So have you ever wondered why the Bible is so confusing to understand? Or why Genesis is at the beginning and Revelation is at the end? You ever been curious as to why there's a New Testament and an Old Testament? Or what does that even mean? Well, I'm sure these are all questions that some of us have all asked at some point. So that's what Bible school is all about. We're going to go through the Bible and we're going to talk about the semantics of the why, the how, and most importantly, the who. If you'll ride this out with me, we're going to go cover to cover through the Bible and dig deep and see the mysteries that God has revealed to us through this beautiful love letter that he calls his word. You've just tuned in to Bible School with Reverend Kojo. Folks, and welcome to Bible School. I'm Reverend Kojo. I'm excited about the word. I hope you are. We are back in Revelation. Um, And (laughs) y'all, I didn't realize how much y'all liked Revelation. I was looking at the statistics behind uh, which which set of lessons and which set of studies you all listen to. And overwhelmingly, you all love the Revelation studies. Um, so I'm, I'm going to make sure that we stay consistent on those. And I guess that it is very fitting that you all are into the Revelation study because it's very telling of what's going on in the world right about now. But I am I am excited about the word. Let's get in the word. Today we're talking about Sardis. We find ourselves in Revelation 3, the very beginning of Revelation 3. You know, the first, um, we know the, that Revelation is split into three sections. Uh, we, uh, we, we get... The first chapter is a section, second and third chapter is a section, and the uh, the third, no, the fourth on is a section. And so, um, when, and, and it's kind of broken up in, 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 this, this, in this wonderful way, and we see uh, the way that God teaches us some things. But we find ourselves in this fifth letter. Um, and we so we've made some headway, and we've kind of made a, a nice little track through uh, church history. Now, as we get ready to read um, the chapter, I just want to give you a little bit of history about who Sardis is and, and why Sardis is important or where we are. So you remember we um, we talked about Ephesus first. So we talked about the church at Ephesus. And you remember Ephesus forgot their first love. They were prudent. They were well aware of the work of Christ, but they neglected the Christ. That we had Smyrna, who God didn't have, Christ didn't have any complaint against them, but he did warn them they were going to be the suffering church. And we know historically they were the church that went through, they were persecuted. And ironically, right behind them, we find the church at Pergamos, and the church at Pergamos was a church that married the world. And so I guess they were sick of their suffering historically as Christians. And so they married the church and then they just got worse last time when we were talking about Thyatira. And not only did they marry the church, but they became the idolatrous church, uh, which is a problem. And we explored that the last time. And so today we're talking about Sardis. And ironically, Sardis, if we were going to give them a title like we gave Ephesus, the, the, the church that forgot their first love, or we like we gave Smyrna, the suffering church, we would attach the tag to Sardis as the dead church, which is kind of interesting considering there are some more churches to come behind it. There are two more churches, but Sardis was the dead church, which is, I think, 
absolutely positively ironic when we look at the the the, the, the timeline of church history. So we know that if you look at these seven churches, you can chronicle church history perfectly, which we know that revelation is a book of prophecy and it's a book of prophecy that we're actually watching fulfill itself. So as Christ leaves, we know Christ leaves and then it emerges later the church at Ephesus. And then the church at Ephesus comes the church at Smyrna, uh, theoretically. And then the church at Pergamos theoretically emerges. And, and you know, they, so they're married to the world and then the marriage to the world gets worse. And, and that becomes of uh, the papacy or, or the papacy or the um, Catholic church. Um, and we see for years and years how they rule the world. They rule Europe and they uh, colonize many portions of the world and they're basically the Roman empire just takes over and enter in today's lesson in history, biblical history. We can actually chronicle the fall of Rome. Rome loses power, which means that the papacy or the Pope loses his power to negotiate and to control thrones. And here we see enters Martin Luther. Now the Pope, you know, let's not be mistaken. The Catholic church is still around. Um, and they're still, I guess, relevant. You could say, um, but then we see this guy who is born and um, he eventually goes to law school. And in law school, there's this thunderstorm that strikes. And I mean, it's like not just some meteor, meager, meager uh, thunderstorm. And he cries out to a patron saint and the patron, he says, hey, save me and I'll become a monk. The storm stops <laughs> yeah, like something straight out of uh, the Bible. Storm stops. And as the storm st- stops, he decides He's going to be a man of his word. He becomes a monk and he goes and studies the word and he is in pursuit of this peace thing. You know, they call me the peace preacher, but but he's in pursuit of this peace because he's now aware of his depravity and his sin and and his how his human nature, no matter how much he deprives himself, always has this aversion towards sin. It's always leaning in that direction. And because he is so aware of of his depravity and he's so aware of what he has going on. He, uh, he, he, he decides he's going to go somewhere and he's, um, brought back to, he gets sick. He has heat stroke because he's beating himself up, trying to rip himself of sin. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's fasting at 15 days, 40 days, several days at a time. And he gets sick. Some monks revive him. And one of the head monks there goes and whispers and uh, encourages him to go read Habakkuk. He finds out that Habakkuk is very similar to him. In their similarities, he finds this one scripture that sticks out to him where it says the just shall live by faith. He goes back and he finds and he goes and he pins these these 99 theses on the uh, on, on the, the doors. And it is not met with a whole bunch of joy. The Catholic Church exile. They like, get rid of him. They they trying to put him out the church, you know, because he was a monk. He, he was an official of the church. They put him out the church. Then they, they're coming for his head. They're so upset with him because he's threatening their lifeline because the church was married to the world. The church was no was not really a spiritual entity. You know, they taught of this God, but they allegorized it uh, to make it fit what they wanted to fit. The people didn't have access to Bibles. They didn't have access to the word. And the word was only rationed at the will of the uh, priest and those who were giving it to them. And so these people didn't have the opportunity to study for themselves. They were not uh, given the opportunity to go to libraries and to find the word. They didn't have the opportunity to speak these things as though they were because they didn't know these things as though they were. They just knew give to the church and you go confess your sins to a man 
man uh, and and all of these things. And so Martin Luther appears and and he causes issues, which leads to years and years and years of bloodshed called the Crusades. Okay. We learned about this in history in middle school. Uh, but the Crusades were, were these wars that they fought in the name of doctrine and of gospel. And thousands and thousands of people lost their lives be, at, at fighting for the right to have the word in their laps, to be able to have a Bible sitting there and to be able to read it and to in, cause it to be engrafted into their spirits. I mean, they fought for the opportunity. And it kind of takes me back to when you go to a China or you go to a, uh, an Africa, places where the word has just been planted and people are desperate to get the word. And they're so desperate that if they can just get a few verses that they can hold on to, that they feel like they have won the lottery. Like the people, after they found out these 99 theses and, and Martin Luther makes these things uh, real uh, unto them, these people are hungry for the word and the ability to have it in their own person that they were willing to fight for it. And they fought these wars over and over and over again. Uh, and they were really fighting for the right to have that word. I think it's really honorable. It's very noble. Uh, and then you see John Calvin come onto the stain and, and John Calvin comes and he preaches and he, he carries some similar things out. And all of a sudden you begin to see these several denominations begin to appear. And as denominationalism happens, um, you would think it's a good thing. You know, we said the Reformation was one of the best things that happened to Christianity, but we are definitely talking about the reform here and what happened in the reform. There was great work that happened. I don't want, as we get into this, because it's going to get a little ugly. There was great work that happened at the Reformation, that there were lives that, that were shed. There was blood that was shed and it was shed for good cause. And I'm grateful that it was shed, but it left some questions unanswered. It left some stones unturned. And that's where we find ourselves in to scripture. It actually leads us to what we could call a comfortable church, which, and, and if you're listening, you don't want to be part of a comfortable church. Uh, you know, I think we aim in our day and age to be comfortable people. Uh, I have a, a bed that I thank God for just about every night. Every time I lay my head down, I say, thank you, Lord, for the resources to buy this bed. Because it's the best it's the best feeling bed I've ever laid in. I mean, the bed is, is a, it's marvelous. And so we seek comfort. I, I, I program my seat in my car to fit me and to feel comfortable so that I'll just feel like the car is fitting me like a glove. I, I go and I make sure that my clothes are tailored so that they fit comfortably, that I can move around and still look good. I'm, I go, I went and tried out shoes a couple of weeks ago to go run in, tried on several pair, went all across Birmingham looking for one pair of shoes because it felt so good. We are people who are programmed to seek out comfort. And because we are people who are programmed to seek out comfort, that comfort has almost has really bled into our comfort in church. Now, before the reform, I would say that the people were indeed comfortable, but their comfort was in, in the wrong thing. These people are actually comfortable in church so much so that they have pulled up their reins on being engrafted in the work of the church. They're comfortable in the building, comfortable in by title, but not comfortable doing the work of the ministry. So we find ourselves today. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through chapter three, uh, verses one through six, and then we're going to dig into what who Sardis is, and we're going to uh, dissect the verses. I encourage you 
to really, really study this. I'm going to give you some notes. I'm going to tell you some of my opinion. I'm going to tell you some of the things that I believe. Uh, As I tell you some of the things that I believe and I throw in some stories and things of that nature, I still want you to go back and read these verses, okay? And pray over them and ask that God would show you what it is he wants you to see from these things, okay? Because Reverend Kojo, Nicole is, is flawed, okay? I am very flawed. And in my flawedness, I tend to make a mistake. There are plenty of times, and I thank God that there are not that many, but there are times when I have had to go back to the throne of grace and apologize for what I taught people because when I came back years later, it was wrong. And I'm going to have to answer for that uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, but I do, I do. I'm going to try to teach teach you the word, the best of my ability and the best of my understanding. But if my understanding is flawed, I want you to catch it for me. So that means you got to be reading the word for yourself. All right, let's dig in. Let's dig in. Uh, chapter three, verse one, what we find. And it says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. That you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works to be perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You will have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, jam-packed with stuff. I mean jam-packed with stuff. Now, real quick, let me just give you a little bit of information about the physical church of Sardis. Why is it important that I give you the, the idea? Because we know that these letters have four levels of meeting, okay? So first we have a local level. There was a literal place called Sardis, okay? And so the literal place called Sardis actually coincides with this figurative place, uh, well, not this figurative place, but this prophetic place called Sardis. And so in, if, we, if we can understand the literal place, the local place called Sardis, and what it was in its glory, in its day, at the time that this letter was penned, it helps us understand what how Sardis relates to the churches as it relates today. Because the literal place Sardis parallels to this figurative place and this place that is being enacted in many of our churches or this Protestant reform idea of church. So as we dig deep into that, who was Sardis? So 700 years before uh, this letter was penned, Sardis was one of the greatest cities in the world. Now it was centrally located ironically to me, uh, it was centrally located, ironically, uh, as it is, um, where Ephesus and Pergamos and Thyatira, it was, it was centrally located to all of these. And so it, it kind of motivated it to be great. It was there at the helm where other, other city, major cities were around it. And where Sardis was, it had the, it had the idea where it could, it could hone in on several things. Now, the earliest coins, and when I say coins like pennies and dimes and things, came from Sardis. Sardis. Actually, when we start to think about the Midas touch or King Midas from the mythology, he was actually set in Sardis. Those stories came from Sardis. Now, physically, Sardis was located on a plateau, which was hard to attack because of the unscalable cliffs, or so they thought, right? 
So, but, and the issue were the, were the people of the people in Sardis was that they were overconfident. They were overconfident in how they looked. They, they thought they, they talked like they were rich, but they weren't rich. They thought they were smart, but they weren't smart. They thought that they were great and great, uh, a military force, but they weren't. And their overconfidence not only led to their fall in the physical, but in the spiritual. And we're going to see how that opens itself up in just a little bit. Okay. Um, but they failed to the Persians and they failed to the Persians because they were not looking at the plateau because they thought that the plateau was unscalable. And the way that they failed to the Persians is because the Persians were watching one day how one of the guys who was supposed to be watching the, uh, the guard, he dropped his helmet and he scaled how he got down the plateau and got back up is how the Persians figured out, figured that they were going to come back up the, uh, the, the, the cliffs and that's how they attacked them and took over. Well, the same thing happened with the Antiochians. Uh, <laughs> the same, they sat there and watched how they went and came in and came out. And then they figured out how to come up the, the plateau of the Persians. And then they took over and they were in the issue in, per, in, uh, in Sardis is that they didn't fortify their bounds or they were not watchful. And that is one of the, that's the major complaint, uh, from God, from Christ here in the scripture. And so ironically they matched, the complaints that he had against them spiritually. And as a church, they, they were had a, as a society. Um, now, and then here's the interesting thing is the 700 years before this was penned, they were great. By the time the new Testament was penned, they were not even, the city wasn't even pretty no more because they had been taken over so many times. Like they were just, it wasn't any, even anything. Now Sardis, the place actually still exists. It has very few remnants of its former glory. It's not as pretty as what it is. Um, and I would be willing to say it's because they didn't pay attention to what they had going on in their town. Okay. So let's get back into the scripture now that we have a little bit of background on Sardis and who Sardis is and why Sardis is. So verse one, back to verse one, let's pick it apart. Let's see what we're, what God is trying to say to us. Okay. So he says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So now let's wait, 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 let's rewind. Where do we hear him talking about the seven spirits and the seven stars? We heard him talk about the seven spirits and the seven stars back in chapter one. Remember that? Well, we can even rewind a little bit. Let's go not even go back to chapter one. Let's go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 11, verse two. We see this and he says, the spirit of Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And so we see this description of these seven spirits. Ooh. And he describes these seven spirits Old Testament wise. Now we know that he promises this comfort or this spirit, this Holy Spirit in the New Testament. We know that sitting in the upper room, they received the Holy Spirit. We know that there's a lot of talk of the Holy Spirit. But the irony here is that there are a lot of denominations, even today, especially today, who are very uncomfortable when we start talking about the, the old, the uh, Holy Spirit. There are some churches who it's all about the Holy Spirit and they neglect everything else. And then there are churches who, who, if you start talking about the Holy Spirit, they're like, Ooh, wait a minute. And then there are plenty of churches who will deal with the idea of the Holy Spirit loosely, but they won't deal with the Holy Spirit uh, as an entity of the Godhead. And so I, I find it incredibly ironic, especially in Protestantism, um, that a lot of folks don't want to deal with the Holy Spirit. And here he describes himself as the seven spirits of God, as if it, this is an important part that you've got to deal with. And so 
And Jesus emphasizes this from the helm. This is the character that he puts on for these people because this is an issue that they have not dealt with. Okay. Um, and then he goes on, he says, I know your works that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Now you're alive, but you're not dead. Now the, our spirit, our spirit, his spirit, our spirit and his spirit are the aspects of us that set us apart from the animals. Our spirit and his spirit are the things that set us apart from the angels. And so the spirit has importance but here he is, he's saying, your name says you're alive, but you're dead. So he's talking as if the spirit is in us. Now, oh, he's emphasizing his life and his spirit and how important his seven spirits, his seven characters, all of these things are. But he's making this claim that they're dead, that there's death among their ranks in their actions or in their spirits. Something's at a disconnect here. OK, now. I also want to note, you remember in most of the other letters, with the exception of one other letter, he, he makes the assertions of the good things that they did first. Even, even in Thyatira, as nasty and messed up as it was, he makes the assertion of the good things that they did before he rips them anew. But here at Sar in Sardis, he don't even have anything good to say about these folks. Which I find ironic because as we as we we dig into this, you know, they're really not necessarily sinful people as we would think of them. OK, they're church going folks. They're principled people. They're they're You know, they, they go to Sunday school. They go to Bible study. Uh, but it doesn't seem as though their church is progressing or their church has power or their church has tapped into. <laughs> the church has tapped into the, <laughs> the helper. Uh, it's ironic. I approached, I preached two weeks ago at my home church and I, we, we talked from, uh, John and in John, I think the 17th chapter, we talk about there, he was going to send another comforter and we see Jesus getting ready to leave. And, and we, we dealt, delved into what another comforter meant. And, um, we, we, we looked at the word comforter and the comforter word comforter there in the context meant the paracletus and paracletus means one who leverages things or makes available things. And so it wasn't that he was going to necessarily be another comforter, but that he was going to be another helper. And since he was going to be a helper, he was going to allow them to have power that they had never had before. And so essentially what he is, he's incentivized, what he's pushing us to see and what we're coming into in, in our own and understanding this, this scripture here is that he's saying you have not connected to the paraclete. You have not connected to the vine. You are not connected to the power. You're doing the things that I told you to, but y'all, 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 y'all are worshiping me. So you say, you, you're kind of giving me credit kind of a little bit, but you're not doing the things that I've desired you to do. You won't, you're not reaching after me. You don't really love me for real, for real. You know, you're, you're a church, you know, you've confessed, but you, you're not doing what I asked you to do. You know, I, you could have some power and be a force in this spiritual walk. You could be out here saving souls and winning things, but you're just not. You're dead because you haven't connected to the paraclete. Um, but, but, <laughs> but he says this, um, but he also says, he says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. That word name, there's a lot of mention of name in this particular letter, okay? But, and so I want to look at that. That word name in the Greek means noma, okay? That word noma 
uh, is is another word for denominations. Denomination. Oh goodness gracious, denominations. <laughs> I can say the word. I don't know what's going on. Um, um, or labeling, putting names on something. So y'all are good at placing placing um, a name on something and, and separating yourselves and moving this one over here and separating yourself. You get upset with this church and you leave this church. You get upset over here and you go over here and nobody is sustaining anything. You, you're just making clubs. But what work are you doing? Are you doing my work? And so, and, and I mean, y'all, let's look at ourselves. Let's look at our hearts. Let's look at, let's look at ourselves as hearts. Let's look at ourselves as local churches and let's look at ourselves and our families. Okay. Let's, let's, let's take a moment because there's a lot of people who have done that in their families that we'll, we'll, when we get sick of one situation, we don't endure anymore. We get up and we leave. <laughs> I said, I was at, at a minister deacon meeting at, at the church this weekend and uh, one comment that I made, and it's the truth, it's the whole truth, that I'm ready to quit every Sunday <laughs> or just about, you know, give or take. Uh, but but they, I get frustrated sometimes. I get so upset sometimes um, that I'm ready to leave every Sunday. But even though I'm ready to leave every Sunday, I come back because I'm committed and I stay Um I stay and I stay and I don't want to stay, but I stay. Why do I stay? Because that's where I'm supposed to be committed. But we have, we've, we've groomed this culture that when we get upset, we get up and we leave. We get up and leave. God didn't say leave. And sometimes he does, but most of the time God didn't say leave, but we get up and we leave because we got butt hurt. And since we got butt hurt, we're not going to stay up. We're not going to stay there. Uh, and we're going to go to the next one and then we leave. Um, and, 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 and people do it. People jump from relationships you got a whole family at home, but you're sick of your wife. Your wife make you bored, and so you're going to get up and leave. We do it. We do it. Or, or and, and <laughs> we get, get church hurt. And, you know, church hurt heart. It hurts. Church hurt and, and, and love hurt. They go up there together. <laughs> they do. They go up there together. And I say they go up there together for this reason. I think they go up there. They're up there. They're that high because we expect more out of the people that we love. So when we fall in love with somebody. We've been vulnerable to them. And so when they hurt us, we can't believe that we showed our heart to somebody who was not going to steward it well. But but church hurt hurts pretty bad as well because we expected them to be at a higher standard because they're supposed to know God. They're supposed to have a relationship with God and they're working to be, you know, perfecting, not necessarily for perfect, but perfecting, working on getting their walk together. And so <laughs> church hurt heart hurts. And so but we get hurt in the church and we run. We go to another church. I'm sick of being here, so I'm gonna leave. And and we do it. I, I'm guilty. Now, I have not left my home church, but since I've been away at Auburn, um, you know, I was at a church for about two years and then I left. And I think I, I feel like I may have been justified, but I couldn't work. They wouldn't let me work. But I left because I was sick of them and I didn't agree with them. And, you know, I heard, I heard a preacher preach at my ordination, and he said he left because his ego told him to, and then tried to fix it. But he left because his ego told him to. And, 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 but in our humanity, we've kind of been programmed to do that. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, think, I don't think that if you're at a church and the word is not going forth and you're not being fed, you should stay. But I also believe that there are some things that we ought to stick out when we make commitment and we make covenant. And I really mean that a little bit more so in the terms of our marriages and our families. 
Uh, but I think in churches, it's important too, because humans are going to hurt you. You know, humans are going to hurt you. It's going to happen. It doesn't matter how much you love a person. You can be madly in love with a person. I look, I haven't been here. I could probably write a book on this and I might write it one day. Today's not that day. Uh, but I could write, probably write it. You could be madly in love with somebody and, and think that you have met your match and they can rip your heart up into pieces. It happens. But there are some times where you have to stay because you, you made a vow. Thank God I wasn't married, didn't make a vow, so I did jump ship. But hey, that's not where we're going. That's the tangent. But moving on to verse two, verse two, he says, be watchful and strengthen the things that which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, historically, when we studied the Refor Reformation, we find that they did an awesome job of bringing us back to sound doctrine. They did an awesome job. I mean, people fought. Um, they, they fought. Uh, one thing that occurred early in the, in the church on the Constantine is they were not comfortable with this idea that Christ would return uh, to save the world of evil ru rulers. So what they ended up doing is they started teaching the word allegorized. Now, and they could do that because in the Catholic church, Prior to this time, they didn't, not, there was no word. Now think about that. Like you could teach whatever, like the Bible was only reserved for the monks and the priests. And so if you wanted to go and preach that the sky was purple and that's the, what thus said the Lord, who was going to check you? You know, they, the church could, they didn't have access to the word. They couldn't do it. And so what they, what, they, what, what ended up happening is uh, they didn't have comp, but, but, but the rulers, because you remember back in Thyatira, which leads us to this one, which is why the Reformation happened. Back in Thyatira, they were married to the the, uh, the church, and the state were one. And and the rulers listened to the Pope. They listened to the rulers of the church. And since they, the Pope had so much power, they were not the rulers were not comfortable with this idea that Christ, like as mentioned in some place, several places in the War Bible, was going to return and rescue this church from evil rulers because they knew they were evil rulers. And so they didn't want to teach this, so they wanted to allegorize it and then and kind of divided theologians into two camps and, and two camps that several theologians have today. I mean, and there are there are sound, well, I ain't gonna say sound, but there are good theologians on both sides. There are people who who's who, with whom doc, who their doctrine I agree with in other places of the Bible on both sides. Uh, but it divides them into two camps, and then what one the first camp is what we call an amillennial thinking. So when we get to the next, the next uh, church, uh, Philadelphia, we'll talk a little more about it. We hit a little bit tonight, and when we get to about uh, the seventeenth chapter of Revelation, and really when we get to the fourth chapter, we're going to deal with this concept of um, we're going to deal with this concept of the the rapture. Okay, now in the Old Testament, specifically in like Daniel. Um, it talks about Christ ruling on his throne on earth in order for that to happen. There's more prophecy that must be fulfilled that hadn't been fulfilled yet. And that's, that's going to be fulfilled in what we call the millennial reign. Okay. Now, so what, what, it, how it divides the, um, the theologians into the two camps is that, uh, Christ returning is just allegory is what they say. And so what that, what that looks like is they think 
that is just, you know, his, 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 his kingdom is in heaven and he's not going to really reign on earth. He has a metaphorical spiritual throne and he's not going to rule the earth, but it is my personal belief is the second camp that he's the premillennial, um, which has this concept of the rapture of the church and that the church will actually be called up kind of like Enoch. <laughs> you know how God just took Enoch. If you're following my Genesis study, uh, you know that, that God just took Enoch before he destroyed the earth, which I think is a awesome parallel for us to look at the rapture of the church and how that works. You know, the Bible says that we're going to call it up in the sky. And that sounds crazy. Like how in the world that defies laws of physics. It, it, it defies all types of stuff. Uh, but it, it's really a mixture of the spiritual meeting the natural. And we're so used to the spiritual being concealed and the natural being what we see. And so this idea that the spiritual is going to take over, it just people don't know how to wrap their minds about it. And and it's hard to teach the premillennial. And so it, it, it's, it's become culturally savvy to teach this amillennial thing. That Christ returning is allegory. He's not going to come back and da 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 da. I'm not here for that. Uh, because if you're going to teach that, that means that they, Christ can't come back for another seven years and that we've got to go through seven years of tribulation and the devil is alive. I, I don't want <laughs> I, I don't want to be here for that. I have take me with you. I want to be raptured up. I don't want to experience any of that chaos that's going to take that place down here. I, I look, I went to judgment journey. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, judgment journey is a thing that they do um, where they enact as closely as they, as possible, humanly possible. Uh, what will happen in the end time uh, when the tribulation uh, happens? I went to Judgment Journey. It was bad. It was vile, and that was just an enactment of what should, could, maybe would have happened. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> I don't want to be a part of it. And so I do hold faith that there is a that the pre in, in the premillennial doctrine. But there are two schools of thoughts, and there there are two schools schools of thoughts that people teach. Um, I, I'd like to believe, and I do believe that there's plenty of scriptural evidence that Christ is going to crack the sky and call his church up before all that hell breaks loose on earth. Um, and I don't want to be here. Um, I'm, I'm telling you, and, and, and as, as you'll see, I'm probably going to teach a, a study on holiness and righteousness, uh, because I think it is important. And it's something that even after teaching the word for about 10 years, I still struggle with it. Um, I'm probably, I'm really, and I've written a book called Call to the Peak, Craving the Pit, which kind of deals with this idea of being righteous and holy and struggling with it. Um, y'all, I, and, and, and I'm going to be, if I'll be transparent with you, I struggle with sin just like y'all do. I mean, I really struggle. I wrote a whole book called Call to the Peak, Craving the Pit, because I be sitting here craving the pit. <laughs> but God is calling me to the pit. And so I had to make declaration and decisions that I was going to go upward and not downward. Um, and, but I struggle with sin just like anybody else. Um, but I ain't trying to be left here. <laughs> and so whatever I need to do to make sure that my work looks perfect and went by perfect, he doesn't mean like perfect as in pristine or, or well, yeah, but like pristine, but not perfect as without blemish, but perfect as in complete and done according to the way that he asked us to do it. Um, I'm telling y'all, um, I, if you are not a rapture believer, more power to you. I am holding faith that I'm not going to be left here to see the chaos uh, that is going to take place. But here's here's the issue historically, because that was the whole point of me taking you on this tangent, is that the Reformation failed to deal with these things. And so we saw wars break out over these differences and we saw chaos uh, break out over all of this. And so I think 
even in a historical manner and in a current manner in today's needs and times, that we need to get back to revisiting the whole gospel and teaching the whole gospel and get out of allegory and getting out of chaos. Get, well, not, not chaos, but getting out of, of, of sugarcoating it. Well, oh, well, this is what it really means or this is what it really means. Look, when I teach the Bible, if I have question about what it really means, I go to the Greek and the Hebrew. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm not one to go and say, oh, well, let's make a fairy tale out of the word. The word is true. It is life. Um, and if you have a different degree of belief, we got an issue. I'm a part of a, a several ministers groups, um, in person and on Facebook. Um, and there's this very well-meaning young lady with whom some of her ideas, I do think I used to align, um, and I guess God just, he had to turn some things on and some light switches on for me. Um, but she goes around saying that she does not believe the, the word of God as in, well, she does not believe that the Bible is the definitive word of God. Now, mm, that's a hot mess to me. It is my view. It is my view that the Bible, the Bible, the Holy Bible, those 66 books written by several authors, over several years, are um, the definitive word of God. That what it says is what it means. Now, when I say what it says, what it means, I do believe that that you got to go and you got to do your searching, because there are translations that get it wrong. Um, I, and and I've seen it firsthand in reading the Greek and the Hebrew. But I, I look, you, I believe that everything that God said and every every word out of His mouth is the truth. And because every word out of his mouth is the truth, I do believe that you, you're going to be held responsible for following this word. Now, I think that there are some Old Testament truths that we get a pass on via the New Testament, but that's via the New Testament. You can't just pick and choose without an excuse. Um, but I'm not here to de- debate the semantics of that. We're here to talk about Sardis and why this is relevant to the church today. Okay. Um, and but what here? So we we need to revi- revisit the whole gospel, okay? And in revisiting the whole gospel, I think it's interesting that God was indeed looking for something from them. I think often we place ourselves in this position where we think that God just gives, 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 and if we want to give something to Him, that's our choice. We don't have to. But look, look what He says in verse two again. He says, "Be watchful and strengthen the things that which remain." That's one that they are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect. He uh, apparently left assignment for his people. Often I think we find ourselves in these places where we, we just assume that we can live however we want to live. Um, and that'll be whatever. I saw this quote today by A.W. Tozer and he said, um, after the reform, we found ourselves in a situation where we, and this is obviously me (laughs) paraphrasing. We found ourselves in a place where we didn't want to confuse this idea that works could get us into heaven. And since works couldn't get us into heaven, we fell into this trap that we are we that that we no longer needed to be obedient. Obedience to the word of God is very important. It's it's important. It's very important. Um, as I said on on life school, this is my year of immediate obedience. I'm trying to train myself to move when God says move. Because I don't want to miss God. I don't want to miss being used by God. Um and, and often I'm gonna be obedient eventually. But I usually I sit here and think about it and suck and how much I don't want to do it. And then eventually I get up and do what he asked me to do. But I don't want to miss God. 
I don't want to miss what he asked me to do and go where he wants me to go. And so I, I, I often work um, trying, especially since this year came in about three months ago, to get my life together. And when God says move, I, I move. And it's, it's yielded some good fruit. <laughs> it's yielded some good fruit thus, thus far. But God was looking for something from them. He wanted them to move. He wanted them to, he expected them to carry on his work and to teach the totality of what he left for them. And it seems as though they only taught a piece of it or they were changing it. Now, I also want to note here is that they're not under attack. You know, Smyrna was under attack. They were suffering. Okay. Ephesus was under attack. People were in there trying to change the word. Um, (laughs) Uh, Thyatira and Pergamos were married to the world. They were, they were, the word was trying to be contorted and, and, and perverted in the church at Sardis. They're not under attack at all. Their issues, like nobody is in the church, like this trying to attack them or outside the church trying to attack them. They just dead. Like they're just dead. They're just not doing what they're supposed to do. It just looks like they got lazy in the middle of cleaning up this world as they had started and they just stopped. You know, they started out with great calls with those crusades and they were fighting for this right to read the word. And then once they got the right to read the word, they gave up. Hmm. That's not good. How does that how does that how does that parallel to you? Did you forget? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? You know, you were on fire when you got saved. I mean, you were hot gung-ho, you were excited about the word, you were excited about the work of the world, the Lord. And then somewhere along the way, you lost your fire. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Stop going to church as often, stop doing what you were supposed to do, and all of that good stuff. And you find yourself in a hot, hot mess. So, um, but they're not under attack at all. And, and that's, that's a little scary, that's a little scary. All right, moving on. Verse three. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. And, and this is God. That's Christ saying, look, remember what you went through. Remember the, which, how you fought. Remember all the stuff you went through. Think about the die, the people that died to have this access. Remember all of these things that I gave you and you have just sat down on the job. Think about how excited you were about the job and you have let go. There's movies about that. There are preachers about this. This is, this, is, this is real world. There are so many of us who have lost the joy of our salvation. I look, I'm, look, I'm actually working on a research project for one of my master's classes. Um, and the research project is I'm looking at the black church. I was started out looking at the church at large, but she told me that that was, that was too large. So I'm looking at the black church and how we've lost our zeal for God. How active we were 50, 60 years ago. How hungry we were for the word. And in our hunger for the word, we lost our zeal. Ain't that crazy? We lost our zeal. Oh, mm, that's not good. All right. But then he says, hold fast and repent. Now, to repent is definitive. It's not a mood. It ain't this place, this, this, this state of being to the repent is a definitive action. It is a, it is an action. You do it and it happens. You, you, you mess up, you screw up and then you go get in the, in the, in the presence of God and you apologize and you say, this is how I'm going to change. And you change, you repent. And I think sometimes we think repentance is a state of being. It's like, oh, I got to get in here and I got to get emotional. Repentance is a call to action. It is an action that comes about with change. 
Because sometimes we think that repentance is just saying some words, and, and that's a piece of it. But repentance is saying, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please wipe this away. And then it is you turning from the thing in which you have repented. Mm. I'm going to leave that alone. But then he says, hold, you know, hold fast. And I think hold fast is a call to me. It's a call to a lot of us because hold fast, a lot of us will repent. But hold fast is like this call to avoid like this spasmic Christianity. You know, when we're up and down, you're like, whoa, when I'm when I'm hungry and I'm on fire for God. And this is y'all, this is this is on me. Because y'all have seen how sporadic Bible school and life school has been recently, and, and this is a call to me. So I'm, you know, I'm gonna have to get repent and get in line. Um, but this is a call to, to to avoid spasmic Christianity. Don't be up and down. Be consistent in spite of your emotions, in spite of how tired you are, in spite of the chaos in your life, in your house, and all of that stuff. Hold fast. Don't be spasmic Christians. Don't be Christians who are only high when you feel the spirit because sometimes we don't feel the spirit because he's testing your commitment to him. He's present, but he's testing to see if you don't feel me near, will you trust me? When you can't see me working, will you trust me? When you, when you feel like I have left you alone, will you still trust me? Will you still be on, on fire for me? Will you still do my work? And often we drop the ball. I, I do it all the time. And God, I, and, and this is me with a repentant heart, y'all. I'm talking to me. We, we make these mistakes. We, when we, we get discouraged and we get off the wagon and we get quiet. We go sit in the corner somewhere. We don't give up our salvation, but we go and we give up our fire and our zeal because our emotions don't match our call. And because our, when our emotions don't match our call, we sit down until the emotions come back. But I have a newsflash. The emotions are not going to come back until you stay on course. Keep your hand on the plow. Oh, that's what the, that's what the slaves used to say. Keep your hand on the plow. And, and what that says is you can't, you can't, you can't get off track. If you're looking back, if you're looking at what was, if you're looking at what is, you're going to miss something. Keep your hand on the plow, keep your feet and your, your stuff planted and move forward. It doesn't matter how emotionally you get. You're not going to cry every time you walk into church. Every time you read the Bible, you're not going to feel high and, and lift it up. And sometimes there are these great emotional experiences. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations where the, where the glory is high and it's thick in there and he makes his presence known because you know he's always present, but he makes his, known, his presence known and felt. And those are glorious experiences and that, that type of corporate worship or individual worship is marvelous. But what will you do when you don't feel him near? Hold fast. Hold fast. And so if you necessarily not aren't in the repent camp, when you know how to repent and to turn from your wicked ways, often we'll find ourselves in that whole fast category. And I'm there, y'all. I didn't, and this is, this is holding me accountable. <laughs> this is holding me accountable. Hold fast. Stay committed. I've called you to some things. I've called you to some places. And if you keep getting on and off, on and off, you'll never make it to where you are. There's so much more work and you should be further than you are now. Good God. Wow. Therefore, I will not watch. I will come upon you. If you. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. And you will not know the hour that I will come you upon you. Now, if you're attending the word, you're going to know. And how do we know that? How do we know that? 
So the way that you know that is that if you're tending my word, you got to be tending the word of God. And we also know that by first Thessalonians five, I love revelation because revelation forces you to dip into the rest of the word. First Thessalonians five says, but concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of Lord so comes as a thief in the night. But when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness so that this day should not overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober. But those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love as a helmet of salvation. Uh, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's here's what we see. Here's what we see is that. That he 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 alludes that that the Lord there the Lord is coming as a thief as of the night, but what he seals in uh, in the verse four is that so that the day should not overtake you as a thief, and so if you're tending the word, if you are doing the work of the church, and you are aware and you are endowed in the spirit, you will see the signs. You will see that things are dark and that they are dismal and that the day is soon coming that he will come and rescue his church when you are, if you are in the word and see, but people who are not of the light, but who are of darkness, people who are doing things that he has asked us not to do, people who are not aware and see, here's the deal. You can be saved or you can be a churchgoer. And this is the whole point of Sardis. You can be a churchgoer, but you can still miss Christ. You can be in the church, but you can still miss his power. You can still miss the signs and the wonders that he's giving us. Uh, and so what we see is that God did not, he says that so that the day wouldn't overtake you as a thief if you would remain sober minded, if you would stay in line and you would continue to do. And what I love is he says in verse one, he says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, that you, I have no need that I should write you. Look, the times and the seasons have been spelled out. Now, here's a little background on this particular passage. First Thessalonians is the first letter that he is that Paul has written to the Thessalonican church. Okay, now Paul literally only spends three weeks with these people after they get saved. And after he spends three weeks with these people, he they establish a church. So he's writing to them because they only got three weeks worth of preaching, sound preaching, baked in preaching. And they are fairly young church, not fairly. They're an extremely young church. And so but he's reminding him them in these letters what he's already taught them while they were there. Don't forget what I've taught you while I was there. And so, but he, 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 he reminds them, he says, look now, if you don't stay engrafted in the things that I've taught you in this word about this Jesus that I have taught you, that I've given you, that has saved your soul and has made you whole. If you don't remain on the vine and you're not connected to the things that I'm trying to teach you and declare unto you what you will miss and you will, what you will miss and what you'll find is that you'll be overtaken like a thief in the night. Just sneak in your house and take all your stuff. He'll come and he'll get his church and you won't get included. You'll be surprised. Oh, that'll suck. I don't want to be there at all, at all, at all, at all. So for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ. So he, he didn't, he didn't design this thing that you would miss him. He didn't design this thing that you would, you would fall into this trap or be taken by the thief. He wants you to be awake and to be diligent and to be serving and to be active in, in the saving of souls. Because if you're not, you're going to miss Christ. And if you miss Christ, bad things happen. 
<laughs> uh, and I, I find it's really interesting <laughs> uh, because because I say it all the time. I say Jesus must be putting on his shoes. <laughs> I say it all the time. I look I look at the things that are going on in this world and the things that they seem to be suggesting. I'm like, he got to be putting on his shoes. God, come. <laughs> I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to miss it. He <laughs> he putting on his shoes. These folks are crazy. <laughs> and I find it. I find it often because. As, as we are submersed in the word and we are immersed in all of this stuff, a true believer is not going to be surprised when Christ strikes the sky. You're going to be like, finally, <laughs> it's kind of like, um, <laughs> it's kind of like that, that, uh, Kirk Franklin song that came out in 2016 when Layla Hathaway and, um, somebody else, some great vocalists sang it, but it was the song says, "When will you come for your daughters and sons?" <laughs> We're getting impatient here. Basically, is what they're saying. Um, but but a, a believer is not gonna be be um, surprised. Now, I find it interesting that in the first three letters, uh, there's no mention of the second coming. But this fourth, this fourth letter, these four last four letters, they definitely make uh, mention of the second coming. And I, I think that what that tells us is that those first three have seen that those churches have fizzled out. They're not around anymore. But since those first uh, three are no longer around, the last four are. And y'all, let's think about that now. Thyatira, symbolic of the, um, of the, the Thyatira is symbolic of that church, <laughs> what church, of the Catholic church. And since Thyatira is symbolic of the Catholic church, what we see uh, also is a representation of um, Sardis as the Protestant church. We're going to talk about Philadelphia next time. And Philadelphia is rep- representative of the perfect church. And then I think Laodicea, good God Almighty, I think that's representative I don't know which church it represented, <laughs> and maybe God will give me that later, I, but it definitely represents our society. Mm. And I think it represents, actually, I think it does represent many of our churches, which is scary to me. Oh, it's scary to me. But I, I think that this rapture, when he talks about he's going to come upon you on, on the, as a thief and a knife, I think that rapture, and we're going to deal with the rapture a little bit more, I think it parallels Enoch perfectly. Remember the Bible says that, it, that he just took Enoch Everybody else, everybody else died, <laughs> but he took Enoch. I think the rapture par- parallels it perfectly. So, all of you who are our millennial thinking, uh, that's my two cents on that. And I probably gave you way more than two cents, but yeah, I have a lot of opinions when it comes to that. Verse four, isn't that amazing? We only in verse four. Verse four, he says, "You have a few names, even in Sardis, that have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." Now, let's think about that real, real quick. Now, we know that white throughout the course of the Bible and garments uh, talks about your um, your state. But we also know that God seems to always deal with a remnant. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis. There are a few names, even though I'm upset with y'all, Sardis, I'm disgusted by you. I just can't deal. I just cannot deal with you. Uh, and because I can't deal with you, you're up, you're messing up and I just cannot deal. Um, but, you, well, you know, what we see is that God always seems to deal with a remnant. Um, you remember he, he, he dealt with Noah, <laughs> all these people on earth and he deals with Noah's house. 
He he deals with Enoch. He takes Enoch. Um, you know, all those that Cyrus freed, didn't nobody want to leave but about 50,000 folks. Um, we see all throughout history, God just seems to deal with the remnant. We we see whenever he gets ready to move and any, anything comes along, he deals with the remnant. You remember he said, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, I would heal their land. He said, if my people, he, he wasn't talking about the, the world, he seems to deal with the remnant which is really interesting to me. I'm really interested to see how many folks are going to be raptured. I want to be in the number, but I'm just really interested to see what a remnant looks like um, when it comes if we start talking about all of time. Uh, but that I'm, I'm, that's just me and my curiosity, right? Verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. So we know that the white and the garments deal with your state. Garments are synonymous with, with one state of being. We know that with the white the white garment would say that you are cleansed and that you are good and that you are good and clear, free and clear in the in the sight of God. But we know that uh, filthy rags would be the equivalent of. Um, we remember he he likened that to how we are our state uh, without Christ. Uh, you know, filthy rags is like a woman's menstrual rags. Uh, yuck. Uh, but then that's how he likened us. Like, if you don't think too highly of yourself, it, it'll push you into a place you don't really want to belong. Uh, but that is, that's what it, what it is. And then when we think about the parable of the wedding guest, the wedding guest that got put out because he was not clothed correctly. And if you'll remember, go back in scripture, uh, that the wedding guest had to leave because the clothing was given by the, um, by the, the host. And that's kind of that speaks perfectly to 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 our state, is that God is gonna, is the only one who can cleanse us and and redeem us and make us whole. Yes, uh, once we have been given the free gift of salvation, He does expect us to do some things, and that's what Sardis is all about. Okay, and then He says, "And I will not blot out His name from the book of life, but I will confess His name before my Father and His angels." Now, this particular verse or this piece of a verse. Uh, brings up a little bit of chaos in the eyes of the church uh, because it <laughs> because it deals with this idea that we, one might be able to lose his salvation or the idea that one or, or the genealogy. And because some people are not really sure what the book of life is. And so people get really hung up on this verse and then, then, then people build whole doctrines on it. And it kind of deals exactly with this idea of denominationalism because people over here making whole theologies off of these ideas that they don't really even understand. So I'm going to try to break it up and break it down as easy as well as I know how um, and how I understand it. Again, this is one of those situations where build your own doctrine based off of what you believe and what you find in your scrubbing of the scripture, not what I say or what your pastor says or whomever says. But here's what I believe. I believe that there are two books of genealogy in the Bible. I think the first book of genealogy that is listed is listed uh, uh, through Adam. Um, and granted, there are several genealogies, but the book of genealogy would be the book of Ge- of Adam, and that is a that is a genealogy unto death. Um, and the second is the second Adam, also known as Jesus, um, and that is a genealogy unto life. Okay. And so some believe that the book of life um, is a list of those in who, for whom Christ died. Well, if we understand scripture correctly, he died for us all. So to be blotted out would be those who don't do what they need to gain salvation, which would be confession and belief. Um, I believe in, look, in John, in John 10, he said, no one can pluck you out of my hands. And in John 17, he reels righteousness to the father. And so what we need to gain salvation and salvation only is that, is to is to confess and believe, but he requires something as a church and as a body and as a person from us more. 
See, I think we've fallen into this trap that we can't get into heaven um, into this because because we know that we can't we oh, we can only get to heaven through Christ and there's nothing that we can do that can seal our salvation but that does not mean that we don't have work to do. It's like this: I'm gonna be my mom and daddy's child regardless. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how effective I am. It doesn't matter how many businesses I start. It doesn't matter how much money I make. I'm always gonna be my parents' child. Now, but if I if I'm staying at their house for a few for a few days, or if I'm home for a, a vacation, and they ask me to clean the kitchen, there's still an expectation that I'm gonna be obedient and do what they ask me to do. I'm still their child, okay. But they've still asked me and there's still going to be repercussions for me not doing some things, even because I'm staying in their house for a few days. That's what that's what we're dealing with here in this in this in this verse, according to what I understand of the word and what I what I believe. OK, and in verse six, the last verse of this letter, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the church. Now, you remember the last four had the promise to the overcomer in the letter. Um Verses outside of the letter, like the first three did. Again, I think that's that's because <laughs> that promise, <laughs> that promise is getting real, and and it is a call to people who are still living and people who are still breathing and churches that are still established. Make your turn, change your ways. Look, you a hot hot mess, and I want to redeem you. I want you to live like I've called you to live. But if you don't do what I asked you, you're gonna face some things that you didn't necessarily want to face. So this is what I find, y'all. God is sovereign. God is faithful. God is a marvelous God. He is a awesome God. He is a marvelous wonder. But this is what I, this is what I also know is that because he is a marvelous God, he still requires some things. It's it's like your your place your place in his book was sealed and signed when you confessed Christ. If you confessed Christ, and and if you haven't, I really want to invite you to do that. But he still expects us to work. There is so much more that he requires of us. After a yes to salvation, we have to make a yes to work. Not that our works are going to get us in heaven. Not that our works <laughs> are what is going to sign or seal anything. But he called us to work. We joined a club. You know, I'm a part of, a, I, I belong to some clubs. And because I belong to some clubs, uh, my membership was sealed when I paid the money. But because I'm a part of that club, they still expect me to do some things. Now, do I have to do them? No. <laughs> but there's an expectation that I will, and I normally will. When you join a church, and I think I think that the only on a very basic level, when you join a church, you know, some of us are very active in church. You know, I'm always there. <laughs> We're very active in church, and so we 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 do things all over the church. And then some people who join the church. And they don't do anything. They come to church and they watch. Now, on the roll, I'm just as much as a member as they are. But there's an expectation of service. There's an expectation of you working and you moving. And here's my thing, y'all. I don't want y'all to miss the glory that God has for you. Um, There are promises that he he promises that we'll experience in this life. Um. There are promises that he promises in this life. Now, not necessarily in this, this passage of scripture we talked about tonight, but there are promises he promises in his life that if we would do certain things while we were here, that we could tap into. Now, this is revelation, and this is, this is a promise. Uh, this is God speaking and trying to get you back on track. And we can just talk and, and, and 
and explore what he has said thus far. But don't be part of the dead church. Don't be part of the dead church. I'm not saying you got to leave your Baptist church. I'm not saying you got to go abandon your pastor. What I'm saying is be eager to explore and to do what he's called us to do. Okay? That's 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 the heat and the heart of what God what God is calling us to. Okay? Let's be blessed. And until next time, this is Bible School with Reverend Kojo.